Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm really pleased today that we're that you're going to get to hear Ashley Gearhart. Ashley is a graduate student in the Yale Psychology Department. Through her research and clinical work in addiction and eating disorders, she's become very interested in, in whether food can induce an addictive process in the brain and behavior. And she no, um, noticed the gap in the field. There was no measurement of food addiction. She's developed a measure that's really a spectrum measure that can be useful both for diagnosing as well as understanding level of food addiction. She is one of the sharpest thinkers in this area and a pioneer in the field of food addiction and has an extremely collaborative spirit and a passion for this science. So I'm really um, honored to present Ashley Gearhart. Thanks so much, Alyssa, and thank you so much for inviting me here today. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you all about some of the evidence that suggests that food addiction might occur in humans, as well as what are some of the concerns about how we measure this construct. So I'll tell you a little bit about what the outline of my talk is going to be like today. First, I'm going to talk to you about the background framework that really laid the the environment to even think about the suggestion that certain foods could be addictive. Next, I'll talk to you about the state of the science. Then I'll talk about some work that we're doing in our group on the development of the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Next, I'll talk about some important next steps that are really big questions asking to be answered. And then finally, I'll talk about why this topic has important implications. So the first thing I'd like to bring up is the fact that this is probably the biggest time in human history that we have all been really trying to maintain a healthy eating weight. We try and eat healthy foods, we try and, and be at that nice thin ideal, and yet we're just not being very successful. Diets work for very short periods of time, but they're just not very sustainable. So there's definitely not a lack of effort or motivation to try and eat healthfully. And so the suggestion is, is this perhaps due to the fact that all this effort is also being done in the face of a food environment that's absolutely unique and new in the human, entire human evolution? We have high fat, high sugar, high salt foods in a way that we've never had before. So is it possible that these foods may be capable of triggering an addictive process that may speak to why it's so difficult to lose weight and sustain it? So there's some area to suggest this is true. There's some evolutionary plausibility, some biological evidence, as well as some behavioral evidence. So I'll start with the evolutionary plausibility. The first is, as Kelly kind of mentioned, we're, we are really just engineered to seek out sugar and fat. We find them very pleasurable. You got a really nice kickback. If, if there's scarce food and you find something that has a lot of sugar, a lot of fat, you're really increasing your chances of survival. But I want you to just think about something and just keep it in your mind. Can you think of a whole food, a naturally occurring food, that's high in both sugar and fat, naturally? I have not been able to think of one. Breast milk. I've got breast milk. But there's, there's definitely an expiration date on, you know, how much you can consume that. Coconuts, they, they're not high in fat. So coconuts, a little high in fat, but not, not nearly to the level that we have with, like, Reese's cup, right? It's gradient. But there's one. So the question is, that's a very different food environment that we evolved in. 
and that the pathways that really ensured that we would seek out um, these foods, we'd go out of our way to make sure we found these really calorically dense foods, are the same pathways that are hijacked to ensure that we're motivated to seek out drugs once we consume them, that you know we continue to crave them and follow through. So these are the same biological pathways that have been hijacked by drugs of abuse. So I'd like to give you an evolutionary case study. This is the coca leaf. The coca leaf is a substance consumed a lot in Latin America, typically in teas, and people consume it as a pick-me-up, sort of like how we drink coffee here. But it's rewarding, but as humans, we're really good at taking something that's rewarding and making it really rewarding. So we process it into a level where it's cocaine. It's extremely potently rewarding, and with that, it increases as an addictive potential. But we don't stop there. We create crack cocaine, which is even more potent and even more inexpensive and highly, highly addictive. So here's what I want to ask. Is there a par parallel in the food world? Let's take corn. Corn is tasty. It's a pretty high sugar vegetable. People typically enjoy it and they like it. But we don't stop there. We take it and we process it so it's really potent, really sweet, and really cheap in the form of high fructose corn syrup. But we don't stop. We combine that with all sorts of other potently rewarding ingredients like fat, food additives, and all the different things that Kelly just talked about. Or we combine it with caffeine. has addictive potential. We add it to this high-fructose corn syrup, some other flavor enhancers, and we sell it like crazy. So the idea is, is there a parallel going on there? Are you, by taking something that's somewhat rewarding and making it extremely potent, are you able to start seeing that triggering compulsive process that you see with drugs of abuse? So there's some biological evidence, and you have really the world experts here to talk with you about this today. So I'm not going to go in detail, but a lot of the evidence that's really supporting this field and researching it really exists in the animal model field. And they found that rats can get addicted to sugar. They really start showing those symptoms of binging, tolerance, withdrawal. I think some of the most concerning pieces is that they show increased motivation for drugs of abuse, for alcohol, for cocaine, kind of a gateway effect. So there's some pretty strong evidence there. And a lot of it as well really focuses on the dopamine and opi opioid system, those systems that are really implicated in drugs of abuse, to make sure we're motivated to consume them and we like them. There's also human biological evidence. Specifically, there's some genetic similarities suggesting risk for substance dependence and obesity, a lot of it having to do with the functioning of the dopaminergic system. Further, you also see disrupted brain regions. So you see that when addicts see a trigger that suggests that alcohol is available, they show a lot of dopamine activation. There's a lot of intense interest. But sometimes when they consume the substance, they actually show less of a response during consumption. There's some suggestion that there's similar things going on within obesity, where anticipatory reward is extremely strong, but consumatory reward is not so. So parallel processes, perhaps. So is all this evidence enough? Is this enough to say, all right, yep, it's addictive, we're ready to go? Well, I would suggest that it's not, because substance dependence is a biobehavioral disorder. At this point, we're not quite ready yet to bring people into the scanner to see how they respond to drug use to give them a diagnosis of substance dependence. We still depend on behavioral criteria that are indicative of whether or not someone meets the diagnostic cutoff for being an addict. So I'm just going to put up, just for a refresher, the DSM criteria for substance dependence. And I'll go through it really quickly. So subs, uh, diagnosis of substance dependence is given when three or more of these symptoms is met and within a 12-month period and clinically significant impairment or distress is 
is possible. So there's tolerance, you need more of the substance. Withdrawal, when you try and cut down specific syndromes. More substance is taken than intended. There's a persistent desire or effort to cut down. A great deal of time is spent acquiring, using, or recovering from the substance. Important activities are given up because of use. And there's continued use despite persistent problems. So this got us thinking, how many of these criteria are evident in our eating behavior? So what we found is that there's a lot of support for three of the diagnostic criteria. Specifically, that people report losing control. You can see that in some of our eating disorders, that you binge, you feel like you can't stop consuming. But you also see that kind of on a societal level, that people really have a hard time keeping their food use where they want it to be. There's also, as we talked about diets, people just really struggle to cut down and be successful at that. And finally, even in the face of really strong medical consequences and as well as weight bias, stigma, psychological consequences, people have a hard time adhering to a healthier food diet. And there's limited research for the other four. Specifically, there just really hasn't been studies at this point designed specifically to ask the questions. There's not a single withdrawal study out there. I'm dying to do it. If anybody wants to talk afterwards, I love to. So there's some suggestion that tolerance is a fact. You can see that in the, the clinical syndrome. And you also can see that in children's response to sugar and its analgesic effects. But still, there's not a lot of support for these four criteria yet. So this got us thinking. What can we do? Can we start to measure and see how these symptoms cluster within people? Is it associated with more binging behavior, more distress? And so we decided to develop the Yale Food Addiction Scale to operationalize the construct. It's the first to operationalize the construct of food addiction. And we're really hoping that this will increase the methodological strength and rigor of the food addiction field. At this point, we've kind of been using obesity as a proxy. But really, just over-consuming something is not indicative of substance dependence. Lots of people drink alcohol even to excess, but they aren't addicted. Further, there's also the desire that there might be people that aren't obese that may also be struggling from very pathological eating. So the tolerance field, I think, is the really the most interesting piece of this. And I think what's really interesting about tolerance is that it would be most indicative in children. Unlike drugs of abuse like alcohol or tobacco, which you start to consume, you know, maybe adolescence, late adolescence, and you can feel a distinct difference, you're aware of that. Eating something like sugar starts pretty early, right? Even these highly processed foods. So if we want to start looking at where the greatest evidence for tolerance would be, children are going to be where it's at. And there's a little bit of evidence in this in sugar's analgesic effect. So sugar works slightly as like a weak morphine. You know, they sometimes give it to children where they'll give them sugar in their mouth and do even minor dental surgeries. I heard from a friend recently that they sometimes do circumcision just based on sugar. So maybe it's a little stronger than we think. So what they found recently is that when they've been watching children and kind of tracking the analgesic effect to sugar. As children get older, they seem to age out of it. And specifically, they found that children who are more overweight, who have a higher body mass index, age out of the analgesic effect of sugar more quickly, perhaps suggesting a tolerance effect. Even a family history of obesity suggests a quicker aging out of the analgesic effects. Now, here's a really cool study just came out. I haven't read it yet, but I saw the abstract. Children with a family history of alcoholism also show less analgesic effects to sugar, suggesting perhaps a risk factor across the two disorders, perhaps some sort of biological innate tolerance. So there's some suggestion there that perhaps, you know, if we looked at this further, we'd find some support. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about our scale development. So we decided we wanted to use the definition that is most across the board agreed upon in the addiction literature, and we used the substance dependence criteria in the DSM-IV. We developed two to four questions to capture each criteria, very similar to the structured diagnostic clinical interview. 
Next, we asked addiction, obesity, and eating pathology experts to review our scale, as well as some people in treatment for binge eating, to make sure it's clear. We had 233 non-clinical participants for this preliminary validation of the scale. And because of that, the majority of our participants were Caucasian, normal weight, and female. So I'll show you some sample questions. I kept consuming the same types of food or the same amount of food, even though I was having emotional and or physical problems. Over time, I felt that I need to eat more and more to get the feeling I want, such as reduced negative emotions or increased pleasure. So these are just some sample questions. I'll tell you about our psychometric results. So we found that 11.4% of our participants met the dichotomous diagnostic cutoff. They met three or more symptoms in the last 12 months, and they had clinically significant impairment or distress. This is really similar to the clinical cutoffs for other eating pathology measures, like the eating attitudes test and the binge eating scale. And as Kelly mentioned, we don't want to just capture those who would meet the clinical diagnostic cutoff. We wanted to have an ability to get a range of symptoms. So we also created a symptom count measure. And the medium number of criteria met was one. Uh, it, most people reported they just can't cut down. That was the really popular one. So the three that I talked about earlier that have support... Again, you see that there is a significant amount of people acknowledging that, yes, I have loss of control and I continue use despite negative consequences. And you'll notice that the cut-down criteria has an extremely high endorsement rate. I think this is going to take a lot of more evidence. It may suggest that this is just not as important or clinically significant within the eating world. It might also suggest what Kelly was saying, and I think someone asked earlier, in the current eating environment, is it just... A, a kind of representative of the fact that we have such a highly potently rewarding food environment where it's, it's difficult across the board to cut down from these foods. Next, I have the four that there really hasn't been that much research on. And we do see that a significant amount, ranging from 24% to 10.3%, did report experiencing these types of symptoms in the past 12 months. So it suggests, there's some evidence to suggest that, yes, humans are experiencing this at least based on self-report. So we did some validation as well. First, we looked at whether or not this converged with other measures of eating pathology, and we found that it did. It had moderate correlations with things like emotional eating and binge eating. But then what was really important is we wanted to make sure we were adding something else to the field. So for controlling for other types of eating pathology, like emotional eating and eating attitudes that were pathological, the Yale Food Addiction Scale accounted for unique variants, 11% above and beyond these other measures in binge eating behavior. And so our conclusions from this preliminary validation is that it's an important tool to operationalize food addiction. It's based on the behavioral criteria laid out by the DSM for substance dependence. But further evaluation is needed. First, it's going to be really important to look at this within clinical populations. Is this replicated in people that are experiencing this in a much more intense and pathological way? Also, discriminant validity. There's a lot of overlap between binge eating disorder and the symptoms of substance dependence. It's a really important question to ask. Are all people who binge eat likely to meet for food addiction criteria? Is there anything added about thinking of this as an addiction versus just an eating disorder? So those are some really important questions to tease out, and we're looking into that right now with some data we just got in. And the predictive validity. You could imagine that some people who have you know, high on the food addiction scale who are going in for a diet versus someone low would need very specific tools, such as a large focus on cravings or perhaps dealing with the environmental cues in their environment. So this is something we think is very important to see whether this predicts people's success at losing weight. 
So there's some really important future directions for food addiction, and Kelly talked about one of the most important, what might be addictive. Before we're going to be able to make any public policy differences or to really increase the healthfulness of our food environment, based on this principle, we're going to have to say it's fat and sugar in this combination, and so that's, that's one of the most important next questions. Next is, is this a combination of both the food and problematic patterns of consumption? So you hear about some great work today about it. It's a combination of sugar and intermittent access, a kind of binge restrict pattern. If you think of our current environment, it's saying, hey, eat all this really pleasurable food, but stay really, really skinny. So we see this constant pattern of I'm going to kind of indulge, and then I'm going to try and restrict, and I'm going to indulge and restrict. Is this pattern specifically kind of combining to create an addictive process? Next, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to want to subtype obesity. It's so unlikely that all obese people would be addicted to food. This is going to be an incredibly important question to ask and to really understand thoroughly. And finally, are those neurobiological correlates that are associated with obesity and substance dependence, are they also tied to those behavioral measures that are indicative of substance dependence? That's an important piece of work as well. But there are some concerns with this construct as well. The first is, is this going to increase bias? Addiction is a very, very loaded word. And it could be one that, when applied, can make people feel more stigmatized and less likely to get help. But there's the flip side of that. When I think back at the history of alcohol, before alcohol was thought of as addictive, it was very much people just need to try harder, have a little more personal responsibility, increase their moral fortitude. Those are the exact same things that are said about obesity today. So perhaps this would help people get treatment reduce the stigmatization around it. But that's an empirical question to be asked. Next is that there's a lot of abstinence-based treatment out there for food addiction that haven't necessarily been looked at in an empirical way. And a lot of people support this works for them incredibly well. They've tried everything else and nothing else worked, but this did. What's going to be important is to validate that, both so we can affirm their experience, but also to look, are there certain people that this relationship of abstinence really increases restriction and perhaps creates a, a more pathological eating experience? So this will be important to explore. So finally, why I think this is extremely important is the public health implications. So addiction has a long history of substance-focused public health initiatives. You know, we're really interested in prevention across the board in disorders and really helping people before they become you know, too, too severe. But addiction is kind of unique in its way that it said, yes, individual differences are very problematic, but we also have to make this substance accountable and, and you know, really acknowledge the fact that certain environments increase the likelihood that people will become addicted. So, you know, we've been down this path with things like tobacco. As Kelly's talked about, there's the idea of taxes. and tobacco, there's a limiting marketing to children. And I think an interesting way to think about this is the idea of potency. So within the alcohol world, there's different public health policies associated with whether a substance has high ethanol or low ethanol. Low alcohol beer, sometimes you can buy it at a younger age. It's sold in gas stations in certain states. Whereas liquor with a high ethanol content, a more high abuse tendency, is typically restricted in where it's sold, taxes associated with it, and price. If you think of this, or even if food isn't addictive, we can all agree that certain foods have more abuse potential. They're more likely to be used in a problematic way than others. If you think of that pattern with alcohol, where the more abuse potential food, drugs are less accessible, food's the exact opposite. The more abuse potential, the more accessible, the cheaper, the highly advertised. So I feel like the addiction world may help provide us with some sort of roadmap on how to make some substantial differences. 
So, I want to thank you all much, so much for listening to my talk today. I really want to have the most supportive advisors. Uh, I want to thank Will Corbin, Kelly Brownell, of course, and Teresa Treat, as well as the Rudd Center for its financial as well as you know, research support through my grad school experience. I also have my contact information in case you're interested in seeing the full scale and the scoring instruction and all that good stuff. And it'll be posted on the Coast website as well. So thank you so much. One question I had about the, the scale is, I'm just wondering if maybe part of the reason why things like tolerance and withdrawal are maybe not as highly reported are because they're not things that we commonly talk about with food, whereas things like um, trying to cut back or things that are socially very... No, knowledge with you, yeah. your first slide about the um, various ways that we try to diet, whereas talking about tolerance and withdrawal are just not socially common concepts, so I'm yeah. wondering if you think that might have an implication in how people report that sort of thing. Absolutely. I really see the food addiction scale as setting up laboratory studies for tolerance and withdrawal. They're physiologically based. We want to see whether that's really going on. And I, like I said, I think tolerance might happen at a very young age, the biggest kind of jump. And we also just think of the, our response to food as how pleasurable I think it is. That's just the surface. I mean, we eat food because of its emotional response, all these different things. So we, we're not very good at measuring that. So that's one for sure. I think we don't speak about tolerance. Withdrawal as well. I think when we worked on this scale, each substance has a unique withdrawal syndrome. And we have no idea what that might be for food. So we kept it pretty broad. I think, if we can, I think when people diet, they experience a lot of symptoms and they anecdotally report them. But I don't think people acknowledge it as like this is a withdrawal syndrome perhaps because we don't have any science to support that. It's just, oh, I hate dieting and this sucks and blah. So I think that the science is, is going to need to come on board to help people have the language to describe what they're experiencing. Great point. Um, I'm just wondering that even if um, we remove those potentially addictive things that you were talking about, um, do you really believe that this will kind of solve the whole addictiveness towards foods, considering that um, research has shown that um, when we lack nutrients in our diet, um, Dr. Tremblay and others mm -hmm. have done research for this, then we continue to eat beyond our caloric needs and we almost show um, addictions to just about any food and um, also considering that um, we know for a fact that the nutrient content in our food today um, compared to 10 years ago um, has decreased up to 60%. So basically, we mm -hmm. are all more or less undernourished. And um, I'm just thinking that the future scenario, being undernourished and overweight yeah. and continue to eat, even if there is uh, no sugar caffeine, the whole, I'm not uh, diminishing what you're saying, yeah. it's like, yeah, you're you're. That's a great question. One I actually hadn't really thought of before. So thank you. I love new questions. Uh, I think that that's a really good point, and I think that the fact that's why food's so interesting and fun to you know, research is that it's not just for pleasure, it's also for sustenance. And there's lots of issues about sustainable growing and how our food is produced. I think that if we say, okay, these certain foods are addictive, the foods that we potentially think may be addictive are the ones with the least nutrient value. So if you're kind of driven pathologically towards those foods, even when you're kind of homeostatically craving more protein or more nutrients of a certain kind, you kind of ignore that because you're just driven by the kind of pathological reward potential, I think that could perhaps shift 
our food preferences if there's less of that, and we may increase our nutritional value by going towards foods like fruits, vegetables, lean proteins, and things like that. I think that it's not the answer. I don't think there's a single one quick shot answer to the obesity epidemic, but I think it could transition us towards a more nutritious diet and also make us more aware of what we're eating in our food and not just put it in our mouth and assume that it's good for us because Coca-Cola branded it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do, and I think there's some research going on here at UCSF to speak to that. I think one of the things that have been most important in helping people abstain from addictive substances are kind of emotional support. There's kind of a more of emotional awareness. It's, it's kind of a lifestyle change, honestly, and it's hard to get people to do that. It, like being out there on the clinical front fields, I give you a lot of credit because that's, that's a hard thing to do. I think that, yes, it's biologically based. Helping people with things like mindfulness, greater social support is really, really important to that. But I don't really think we have a choice and anything that's going to be easy and quick. And that's part of the reason I like the addiction concept, because right now people are dieting all the time and failing and thinking, this is me, this should be easy. I, I took this special pill, I'm on this special, why is this, what's wrong? Addiction suggests, hey, this is, this is a big deal, this is hard. Okay, you're going to need some support, you're going to need some actual treatment here. And so that's where I think the addiction comes into play to actually help people make this more central in their life and their lifestyle choices. I guess I'm thinking of the the tolerance issue in uh, common forms of obesity. Mm -hmm. And the challenge there being, what is the effect that you are going for while you are overeating? Yes. And to what extent is that conscious? Yep. And to what extent, so how can you possibly get at that? I would suggest one of two ways. The first is you always, I feel like self-report is essential because this is an experience that you're having. And so people can typically say, oh, you know, I used to eat that bowl of ice cream and it was a big reward for me and I liked it and now I eat more. So that's useful. But I think you're bringing to the fact that we're going to need to rely on something that's not just conscious. So I think looking at, like, Alyssa's doing some great work on opiate response. And I think you can perhaps give someone a drug like naltrexone that blocks the opioid pathway. It's useful in creating um, withdrawal in morphine, alcohol, and you see a withdrawal syndrome. And, you know, I think, I think that having very precise, I really like the biological combination with the self-report, is going to be how you're finally going to be able to nail it, if it exists. It might not. And, you know, not all addictive substances have withdrawal. Like, marijuana does not have a withdrawal syndrome, as according to the DSM. So it's not essential. You can have tolerance and withdrawal to beta blockers or heart medicine. So it's that whole cluster of symptoms. You cannot have tolerance and withdrawal and still be addicted. One last question. Yeah. Uh, is there evidence for a progressive increase in food intake and obesity? 
And obesity, you know, I haven't looked at that specifically. And I don't know if anyone here has research on that, but I think that's a great question. I think one of the struggles there is the fact that our food measurement tools, like food frequency recalls, are very imprecise, and they don't have a lot of reliability. And so you'd have to kind of follow someone over a very long period of time and weigh and measure their food. There's some methodological considerations. But there was a really, I was at a conference in Houston, and they came up with a really interesting idea of whether we're seeing this on a population level, whether the fact that we've gone to get more and more salt, more and more portion sizes, more and more sweetness, and have become kind of immune to something we used to think was sweet. Now we, you know, the, the extra double sweet candy bar with the crunchy nuggets, whether we're seeing kind of a population tolerance to this really rush of foods that are so potent, and whether that's the portion size that's part of it. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.